0: This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Welcome to Speaker for the Living. This is Seth Dare, and I'm hosting today with special guest, Andy Kimbo-Floyd who is an author of a few different books, most notably for purposes of our discussion, The Slaves Have Names, Ancestors of My Home, Steel Secrets, and then Charlotte and the Twelve, A Steel Secrets Story. Welcome, Andy. It's good to uh, talk to you again. Thanks for having me,
1: Oh, so good to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
0: So Andy and I actually went to the same uh, undergrad Messiah College, and somehow never formally had a conversation there. How'd that happen?
1: I, I, I don't have any idea how that happened. I don't know. <laughs> it was a small space. It's kind of surprising that we didn't talk there.
0: Right. We probably were in the same room. I mean, we ate in the same lunch room, and yeah,
1: and we probably had a class. I would imagine somewhere along the way, but I. It sounds terrible, but I would have no memory of that, Seth. If we did, so. <laughs>
0: So uh, with this podcast, we are focusing a lot on forms of modern slavery, like human trafficking, but it's also important to me to discuss history and how we got here and the impact of slavery on how it affected people hundreds of years ago and also how it's affecting us today. So I've been following you for a while on Facebook and listening to things you have to say as you go through your journey. And so we'll go back to... Most notably, The Slaves Have Names. So how did you come to write that book, and what 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 got you to that point?
1: Well, I grew up, I live here in Virginia, and I grew up here on a slave plantation, on what had been a slave plantation. My dad was hired by the descendants of the original owners to manage the estate and start a tree nursery there. So we moved there when I was 14. And there was not, it wasn't as if anyone tried to cover up the fact that people had been enslaved there, but there wasn't very much discussion about it. There was and still is an existing slave cemetery that was walled off and well noted, um, but nobody really talked about any of the enslaved people. And I didn't even, I mean, I was a teenager, so... I was mostly paying attention to boys. So I didn't really pay attention to anything about that until I went to college to Messiah. And I took a Native American studies class. And Steve Cobb, the professor there, was just having us read things and teaching me history that I felt like I should have known all along about the Native American genocide and the trail of tears and wounded knee and all these things. And I, it, it that was the first moment where I suddenly went, I feel like there are things in our history that people have been purposefully not telling me, not, you know, not just not me, but not teaching. And slavery was one of those things. And I got an opportunity while I was in college over a summer to work with uh, an anthropologist who was trying to research, the treatment of enslaved people during chattel slavery, particularly through their medical records. She was interested in how long people lived, and she was interested in particularly in mothers and what, their, what happened after their pregnancies and during their pregnancies. Were they still working in the fields if they were field workers? Were they allowed to nurse? Did they nurse on the fields? All these things. And so I was doing some research for her um, because she was working at the plantation where I grew up. And that got me asking questions about why I didn't know more about these people. And then through a series of events that just sort of are the way life works out when you get on a path that's sort of set for you, I ended up doing more research of that nature and eventually ended up after graduate school working at the Martin Luther King Jr. Papers at Stanford, where I really honed my research skills and learned a ton about the civil rights movement and the way that slavery created a legacy that we still live with today and so I got sort of some training and then a few years ago six years ago my mom got very sick with cancer and I moved home to take care of her and help my dad and um, so after she passed away was I'm that sorry on I had, the plantation that was on the plantation okay. yep so they my parents my dad still lives there so that house is is still my dad's house and um, so I was there and I was um, after mom passed away, my dad said to me, if you want to write a book, I will pay your bills for two years so that you can, you can get a book done. And at first I thought I would write about my mom, and my mom does come into the Slaves Have Names a little bit, um, but I ended up really feeling like I should write about these people that nobody talked about, around which there was this huge silence. And it was sort of all of those things in my life combining together that brought me to want to really research these people um and then my dad's graciousness and generosity that made it possible for me to do the research and and do the writing to write the book.
0: It's probably worth noting at that point that writing was not something new to you at that point.
1: Right, yeah. So I have a, a bachelor's in English and then a master's in literature and an MFA in creative writing. So Writing was what I did. I was a college English professor before my mom got sick. So that was sort of my my deal anyway. So I was looking for a topic and this was the one that presented itself.
0: What are some highlights or uh, things that you learned as you went through the process of writing that book?
1: Yeah, uh, I think one was just, I mean, the title of the book is really important to me because what I did know about slavery up until that point was big you know, numbers, you know, how many people were enslaved and then the sort of generic notion that it was bad, you know, but not really why it was bad. Like I had not ever thought through why it was, was bad. I mean, it sounds sort of naive, but I think that's a pretty profound thing that I, that I had just never conceived of it as happening to people, to be honest. Like I had just been very sort of distanced from it enough that I hadn't really conceived of it that way. So when I started doing the research and reading about people who have names and who have parents and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives, and suddenly they became part of a framework that I could understand, like the framework of a family, I became very horrified. And it took me a while through the process of research and writing to Come to a place where I could deal with that horror in language. So that was probably one of the biggest things. But then, I mean, to learn about just the true day to day existence of people who were enslaved, you know, what that day, daily life looked like, what that meant, you know, what did freedom really mean? You know, it's very easy to take that for granted. So to sort of weigh out that, and then to also come to terms with. The hard reality of this was just the times. This Mm -hmm. was the man that owned these people. This is just what it was. And it it was horrible and it was wrong. But it would have taken an an immensely extraordinary person to buck that system. And the person, the man who owned the plantation I grew up on, was not that extraordinary in that way.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you wrote profiles for uh, lots of people that uh, were enslaved Mm -hmm. on the farm. Uh, what's one of them that stood out to you
1: they stand out for different reasons like depending on so i i'm still in contact i'm still doing research i'm still learning a lot about these people so Mm -hmm. right now the woman that's in my mind the most is a woman named minerva whose brothers were named james monroe and james madison and then um who lived on the farm and i just really liked minerva i like that she's named for wisdom I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of these people were named for Greek and Roman gods sort of to make them not elevate them, um, as people, but elevate their status so that the plantation owner looked more powerful. But I love Minerva's story now because I now know her four times great grand nephew. And Mm -hmm. now I know more about her. I know that she, Her parents were sent to the plantation owner's son's house in a couple counties over. And they had three more children, <laughs> one of whom was named Frederick Douglass and one of whom was named Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> and I just love that they named their children these wonderful names for these powerful people. And they did choose those names. And I know that Napoleon Bonaparte drew survived through slavery. His last name is Drew. They were all Drews, which I did not know when I wrote the book. And that his family became associated with uh, a boys, and girls, boys and girls schools in this part of Virginia that specialized and focused on educating African-American people. And that family is still associated with that school and that place today. So for now, right now, Minerva is most on my mind.
0: You're probably familiar with Orlando Patterson's concept of social death, the idea that some people are not really a part of society. And in fairness, lots of poor people throughout history couldn't write, couldn't tell, tell their story, and even more so with slaves where they're really not part of society anyway, their property. So what is it like to try to unearth that and even think about that it is hard to find out some of it, and maybe it's a different type of history.
1: Yeah, it, it's something I really still I still struggle with when I talk about the book because one of the critiques of the book is that there's not enough information about these people, and so in the book I do a lot of imagining what their lives were like because there just is not there just isn't information. Some of the people on these plantations were actually literate; they actually could read and write. Um, but they wouldn't have been given the opportunity to do that. And it would have been dangerous for both them and their, uh, the plantation owner to do that. So, but I mean, that comes back to me to that concept of freedom when you have no choice about how you spend your day, like, like absolutely no choice. You have no choice about. Uh, what your family does, where you live, what you eat, um, you are circumscribed to a place and cannot leave it. you know, can't leave it accidentally without fear of death or or abuse, physical abuse. When your children can literally be sold away from you and you it's not that you can you can't even fight it. There's absolutely no way to fight that powerlessness is a concept I struggle with as I write because I can't conceive of it. It's not something I've ever had to live with. And while the conditions of slavery were often absolutely horrendous, the living conditions, the working conditions, um, it is often that powerlessness, that lack of agency that haunts me the most um, because I don't know what it is to not, to not have agency, to not be able to fight for what is right and what is mine. Yeah.
0: So when you were researching, did you find records where people were listed as property?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the most um, powerful, uh, important, and hard documents that is in the collection at the University of Virginia, which is where the Koch family papers are, where I did most of my research about these individuals, um, there's a really comprehensive inventory of people. And so at Brimo Plantations, where I was writing about, there are three separate plantations, and it can be hard to, they're all connected, they were all owned by the original owner and then his sons, but it can be a little hard to tell where individual enslaved families were living. And this inventory actually not only tells me what plantation individual people were on, but it tells me, it gives me family groupings. So I know who parents were. I knew who children were. Um, I know who some of those children married and who some of their, their children were. So I had three generations, which doing African-American genealogy during slavery is almost impossible. But, it, but it's an inventory for tax purposes because he's paying you know the master is paying taxes on these individuals just like he would on his cattle there was also another document where i got very excited anytime i see anytime you see names of enslaved people in documentation it's a cause to celebrate because their names mm-hmm. are not often listed and so there was a list of names on on a sheet of paper and uh I was really excited because I thought, oh, another list. And I flipped it over. And it, it took me a little while to figure out that that second list was actually a list of the litters of puppies. So, the same, literally the same piece of paper. One side are listed human beings and one side are listed dogs. And that's a, yeah, that's a heartbreaking reality of how these people were viewed and treated.
0: And, and so, in regards to taxes, slaves counted for taxes as well as representation. And the major way that in the United States at that time that they figured out how much taxes people owed, especially in the South, was based on property and that form of property was slaves. Right.
1: Right. So enslaved people counted as an an enslaved person counted as three-fifths of of a white person for tax purposes, for representation purposes. So dehumanizing not only for the individuals um, who were considered less than a full human legally, um, but dehumanizing in terms of the system as well. Like it's teaching everybody that these people are less than human. And I, I would add to that one of the legends that comes up around slavery is this idea that white people, plantation owners, didn't really think of their enslaved people as people. And that would be, that's erroneous. It's too simplistic. They interacted on a regular basis. These were not, you know, enslaved people were not living like off on some far place that their masters were not seeing them. These people were interacting regularly. And with when it came to house slaves interacting intimately all day long, every day. And so there's a mental gymnastics that plantation owners are doing in order to enact a law like the Three-Fifths Compromise. They're really compartmentalizing and really doing some mental work to convince themselves that it's okay that these people that they know are people because they interact with them every day are not actually worth the same thing that they are. It's the same mental gymnastics we do anytime we work with racism, anytime we embrace that.
0: Well, and the fact that they were people is part of what made them valuable for workers rather than comparing it's- them to cattle or dogs.
1: Precisely. Precisely. Yeah, and that's where, you know, you see one of the things that is an unfortunate tool you can use when you're doing this research is you can look at the values people are assigned. And even if you don't know their age or their gender, you can know, you, you can usually guess their age and gender by how much they were worth because a young man can do more manual labor than an old woman. Um, and so you had to, and, and you can't, a, a cow cannot make a decision, you mm-hmm. know, so people can though. So they are more valuable Than animals, Um, so you know. Sometimes they talk about the hierarchy. I'm not sure I'm gonna, I'm gonna count on plantation owners of having that clear sense of things, but um, they definitely were literally monetarily more valuable than any animals on the plantation.
0: Part of the difficulty, and I'm, I know you've seen this, and realizing that there is variation by region, by farm, and that as Horribly dehumanizing as slavery was, that on the other hand, slaves were not just pure victims, that they tried to exert agency and choice within a very limited uh, scope.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, Sally Hemings is the example of this that comes to mind. She was Thomas Jefferson's, uh, I always struggle with a word here. Companion, maybe would be the word I would choose. Um, she was an enslaved woman. She had very little agency, but the agency that she did have, she exercised. So, the Hemingses of Monticello is an amazing book by Annette Gordon Reed, and in it, she—I think she does the best job of discussing this. And when she points out that Sally Hemings went with Thomas Jefferson to Paris, and slavery was illegal there, she could have left, but she didn't, um, and we'll never know her motivations. We don't have any of her, any of Sally Hemings writings anywhere,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but they were probably complex, you know, to leave would require her to live in a place that she didn't know. It would require her to leave her entire family. Um, it would require abandonment on some level to be free would have meant she left her family in slavery And there is the very good possibility that she had on some level affection for Thomas Jefferson. We have no idea because we don't know what she thought. Um, But to discount her ability to take some level of action would be to do her a disservice. You know, it would be really to say she had no mental faculties, when of course she did. She was brilliant. So, And that was true on every plantation everywhere. You know, people are, I always think of the enslaved men who were often the foreman on the plantation, the foreman at, at the Bremo plantation with a man named Primus. And the, the kind of negotiating he would have to do to both manage the enslaved workforce and please his master takes an immense amount of skill, an immense amount of fortitude, an immense amount of emotional intelligence and to use it for good. You know, I like Primus, so I like to imagine that he he used the power he had to benefit the other enslaved people on the farm. And so we have to we have to think about these things complexly. We can't just simplify.
0: Mhm. So you've mentioned how slavery is this abstract thing, this bad thing. You chose and the slaves have names to imagine some of their situations along with uh, a lot of facts that you had. Mm-hmm. And then you went and wrote two young adult novels. Right. So, so was part of that to make it something more than abstract details to try to emotionally connect with this thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, part of it is that I can, ima- I can fill in a lot of gaps when I can just make things up And there's an an emotional intensity that comes to a narrative that is whole, um, that is very different than a narrative that is pieced together. And so I really wanted to write books that would be more, they're more accessible. It's more accessible to people. That's part of the reason I write them as young adult novels too. But I also wanted to tell some 21st century stories so that it became clear that this legacy is still very alive, that the legacy of slavery is still living quite strong and that we need to understand that in order to, to heal.
0: Mm-hmm. So in steel secrets, you came up with the character of Mary steel, who happens upon a cemetery and the ghost of a slave and goes from mm-hmm. there in her journey Uh, Mm -hmm. How did you come upon that character?
1: Uh, Mary is who I was when I was 17, except she's way cooler than I was. Like, I wasn't very cool. Um,
0: You're you're the writer, so you can do that.
1: That's right. I can just make her, like, whatever she wants. But, um, yeah, so she's based on me. I mean, and and I wanted that. I did that intentionally and also unintentionally in the way I think all writers do, and that I know her best, so it's easiest for me to write a character based on myself. But... I also wanted her to be just a normal teenager. Like I wanted her to be accessible in that way. I didn't want her to be strikingly gorgeous or, you know, a genius or anything. I just wanted her to be normal because I feel like one of the things that we forget is that normal people can make a real difference when we take action for things. So, so that's where she comes from. (laughs) Mm
0: hmm. So as part of that journey in both these books, you've mixed in lots of fiction and then some exposition on, from, from her point of view about the reality of the situation and looking back in history and so on. So what was it like to balance fiction with telling, I guess, more factual information?
1: Yeah. It's a big writing task. I mean, it was a hard, it's a hard task for me because I'm trained as a nonfiction writer. I mean, my degree is in creative nonfiction. And, and so I actually never thought I would write fiction because I find the actual world quite fascinating, but there are some stories that need to be told that can't be told as they are for lots of reasons, privacy reasons. Um, information reasons. And so it was a different experience in that I, well, I got to make the place and, and create this, the plot line, but I got to give Mary what I think now. I got to have her be far ahead of where I was when I was 16 and 17 years old um, in terms of realization about racism and slavery, in terms of Understanding her community or having the opportunity to understand her community, I grew up in a very open-minded house, but in a still a pretty sheltered world. And so, uh, Mary got to break out of that shell a little bit more than I did as a teenager. And I really wanted a chance to honor that. So the exposition piece is—it's me trying not to be too pedantic. But also trying to make some very clear points about what Mary is learning and seeing as she's going through these experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: I think you did a good job of that. Uh, there's major books that struggle with that, honestly. And uh, but it's also it's a it's challenging to write about slavery, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And uh, were you concerned at all about? just the challenge of writing this type of book and what type of response you would get.
1: Yeah. (sighs) It seems like it's been overwhelmingly
0: positive, hasn't it?
1: Yeah. For the most part it has been. I've, I mean, the critiques I've gotten for the most part have been sort of unfounded. I mean, I don't, I've gotten some critique that was very well founded and I take that to heart, but some of it has come out of misconceptions about racism or, slavery or those kinds of things. And those things are just things I dismiss. But um, I mean, I have gotten a little backlash and it's completely fine that I've gotten it about being a white woman writing about slavery and selling books about it because it feels, as best I can tell to these people, like I'm co-opting a history that isn't mine. And I honor that and I certainly understand it. And yet I know I need to keep writing these things. Um, I have access to an audience that most people of color don't have access to because of the history of racism in this country. And so I want to use the privilege and power I have to keep telling these stories. So, but by and large, yeah, the response has been really good. I'm not really a fearful person by nature. That's just not how I'm made. And so I didn't really worry too much about the backlash I've written in my writing life about my father's depression, about my divorce, about a lot of things that, might make some people worried, but I just, by total grace, am not actually ever worried about that stuff. So it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when it comes, when the backlash comes, but I don't tend to think about it up front.
0: Well, and, you know, I respect that you've put yourself out there on Facebook quite a bit and uh, expressed how you feel and think about things. And that probably also helps you find your voice and say things, I imagine.
1: Yeah, oh, it definitely does. Um, it helps me to have conversations about this with people. Um, so I can anticipate, you know, as I write, I can anticipate what objections or critique might come or what questions might arise. And those conversations are invaluable um, for me just as a writer, but also because I think we don't change if we isolate ourselves and to talking only to people who think and believe and understand
0: like us. So, mm-hmm. so in steel secrets, uh, she discovers the cemetery. She starts researching what it's about and uh, who, who's buried there and then gets involved in tension within the community, which causes some of this growth that you're talking about that uh, you didn't have when you were her age because she was kind of forced to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? Uh, how did you derive where to get the uh, tension and opposition from?
1: Gosh, that's a, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before, Seth. I don't know. I actually don't know where it comes from. I mean, I've done a lot of anti-racism work with an organization called Coming to the Table. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of that uh, kind of resistance. Um, but I, all of everything in those books, aside from... The fact that Mary's loosely based on me and the setting is loosely based on the town my husband grew up in Mm -hmm. is fictional. So there's no – I didn't like witness that and then sort of (laughs) take it over. Um, But I do – I mean I do know what it is to live – the books are set in a small mountain town in Virginia. I do know what it is to live in a small community, to have racial tensions percolate up surprisingly you know coming out of issues and situations that people never imagined high school football games um you know the building of a bypass that's going to end up going through a cemetery which is part of where this idea for steel secrets came from Mm -hmm. and so i've just seen these things happen and in some ways the steel secrets book books escalate That the racism that's in the communities often, like in the communities I know, it's much quieter. But in a book, you need it to be more obvious so you can work with it. But the reality is that those, like the White Citizens Council was a real, is a real organization. Those groups still exist. They often still carry a great deal of power in small towns. And so it's also based in fact and history. So just interpret it into a fictional setting.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So Come to the Table. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So Coming to the Table is a national organization that was founded um, by the descendants of enslavers, so people who owned slaves in history. One was a descendant of Thomas Jefferson, and one was a descendant of the Hairston family, which was another Mm -hmm. big slave-holding family here in Virginia. And they wanted to make amends may not be the words they would use, but they wanted to do some healing around their family's history. And so they started this organization called Coming to the Table that has as its main mission to bring together the descendants of enslaved people and the descendants of enslavers with the goal of healing. And so I couldn't tell you right now off the top of my head how many local groups, but there are several local chapters of the organization, now 12 or 15 now, all around the country. And their primary function is to get people together and talk about these issues. Um, there's often a genealogy component where people are researching their family ancestries. I was on the board for the organization for a while, and now I often work with them, with individual members, to do research about their family history. Often I work with the white families to talk about how to come to terms with what their families did historically, what that means for them, Um And that's what happens in the organization all around the country in different ways.
0: So if somebody wanted to join one of those groups, uh, what might a conversation be like or what might happen?
1: Yeah, often it's a conversation where people are just talking about what they've been thinking about, what they've been reading. Um, Here, the local group that I'm part of is in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and um, we've had conversations where we've talked about white privilege You know, what does that mean? What does it look like? We had, after the um, shooting of Michael Brown, we had an improvisational acting troupe come in and lead us through some discussions about violence and police violence and what the violence in our own lives around race. Um, Some folks sit together and they do what are called healing circles, which is where I got the idea for the healing circle in Charlotte and the Twelve where they'll have a topic, maybe it's an experience of racism that they've been victim of or witness to, and they will go around a circle and just share that experience. And the whole idea is to be able to hear one another and not judge and not correct and not advise and not try to fix, but just to sit with the discomfort around these things. So some groups get together and have dinner. Some groups do film showings. Some groups do protests just depends on the nature of the people that are there. They're very malleable. And there's lots of information on coming to the org if people are interested.
0: With Charlotte in the 12, we'll talk a little more about that. But mm-hmm. uh, the, as far as how it ended coming into conversation and uh, getting away from some of the approaches where we get, people not listening to each other where we have people denying racism. We have people crying out racism and that sometimes the conversations just break down completely and seeing Mm -hmm. something that was really oriented toward healing was a a really, not just a nice sentiment, but it it seemed helpful.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, some of the most powerful experiences of my life have been in healing circles with coming to the table where I've listened to people share their, their suffering. Um, and because of the way the healing circle works, everybody knows they're going to get their turn to speak. So there's not really a, I got to formulate my response because you know, it's going to, you're going to get your chance. The honesty in those places is just profound to me. I mean, and it's not easy. It's not a It's not a touchy feeling like everybody goes home feeling warm and fuzzy. It's often I go home really discomfited and really uncomfortable, but in a way that, that breaks me open so that I can heal and hopefully help others heal.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you have uh any reading you'd like to share from Charlotte in the twelfth?
1: Yeah, if that's okay, does that section reading something about the healing circles? Does that work?
0: That works.
1: Okay. Cool. I really like that section, so it's a nice choice. Okay. Here I am. All right. So let me read from let me read from the next to last one so that we don't give away the book mm-hmm. if that works. Yep. So i would rather not have everybody no i'm just getting to the page here we go so if anybody's interested this is page 187 of charlotte and the 12 within three hours the room was full of people mostly the parents of the children who had died but a few of the folks from our healing circle the other day were there too former students and community members, and I was suddenly very aware that what we had promised Popson, Granger, and Tomlinson, a quiet, intimate space to share, was gone. I didn't think they'd be too thrilled with that. Mom and Isaiah must have had the same thought because they were down the road a ways so they could explain to the men what had happened since we last spoke. Seemed wise to me. Better to have the men lose it out there than in here where people were already pretty stirred up i had had two conversations with two mothers already, Terrence's and Davy's moms, that made me nervous that things could get ugly, no matter what we did. It's not a quiet, peaceful space when a 75-year-old woman tells you that she's going to stab her cane through the throats of the men who did this. Things had gotten out of hand, very out of hand. Mr. Meade had decided to go ahead and ask Stephen Douglas to come down and bring a deputy or two with him, and I was glad they came and that they came in plain clothes. I felt better with them there. As much as the police were partially to blame for this horrible, horrible situation, I still was a white girl who had grown up to trust police officers. Well, Marcy, not so much. She liked Stephen well enough, but she'd once told me a story about how her grandmother sat her down and said, Now, when you see a police car, you walk slowly in the other direction. You don't run. You don't look nervous, but you go the other way. Hence, while I was glad the deputies came in plain clothes, we didn't need people feeling even more nervous than they already were. At 2 p.m., I looked out the window to see Mom and Isaiah talking with all three men by the side of the road. Mrs. Popson was there with two other women, Granger and Tomlinson's wives, I imagined. From the way the men were standing with their feet wide apart and Mom's attempts to lay a hand on an arm now and then, I figured things weren't going well. But we had people here now who needed to talk, so I caught Micah's eye. He nodded and began encouraging people to take a seat. I sat with my back to the door because no one else was and waited for everyone to settle. I could feel my heart in my ears and I thought for sure I would need to hydrate soon since I was pouring out half my body's weight through my palms. I had no idea what I was going to say, but I knew something needed to be said. And for reasons I still don't understand, I knew I had to be the one to say it. When everyone was settled in a chair, I began, My name is Mary Steele. "'I know most of you don't know who I am, and there's no reason you should. "'I just grew up here in Terralinda, like many of you did, I imagine.' "'I saw heads nodding. "'I'm here in the school today because I care about it. "'I care about its history, both the good, amazing, fun things that happened here "'and the horrible ones.' Mm "'Mm-hmm,' someone said from across the circle. "'I'm also here because my friends care about this place. "'Many of you know Micah and Darren Tindall, "'the two men who've kept the schoolhouse standing for over 50 years. "'People nodded in their direction.' You may know Mr. Tom Mead, the sky school High School History Teacher, and Shamila Meadows from the Historical Society, and these are my friends Javier, Marcy, and Nicole. We all care about this place and the people who love it. I took my time even though I wanted to flip over my chair and bolt out the door. I looked each person in the eye because Mama taught me that eye contact establishes connection, and I needed them to- and I knew I needed them to see me for real in order to say what I needed to say next,
0: yeah. Oh, thank you, Andy. So, this You're welcome. took place uh, with Mary Steele being the lucky person who gets to meet more ghosts, this time in a school. That's, so, could you talk about right. the schools for me?
1: Sure. So, this is set in a Rosenwald school. And Rosenwald schools were schools built across the South uh, for rural African American children. And they were funded in part by Julius Rosenwald, the man who owns Sears and Roebuck. And the idea was that Mr. Rosenwald would give a certain amount of money if the county, that was the local government, still is here, and the black community also contributed funds. And so until the school started to be built in the early 20th century, most African-American children in the rural South were not educated. Obviously, schools were still segregated, and many white children did not get to go to school. If they did, they went to a one room school two room school. But black children almost never had that opportunity so Julius Rosenwald saw this fit to create a fund and um, in Virginia, there were over three hundred of these schools built, um, seven in the home county in the county I grew up in um, There's one uh, in the county I live in now, just around the corner um, and they by and large, have fallen into disrepair. Most of them closed in the 1950s and early 60s, um, and just the way things work, they weren't cared for. And now there's a there's a movement. There's a large group of people, particularly the alumni of these schools, that are working to save them. And so I've been privileged to be a part of a little bit of that work here in Virginia. I wanted to just draw attention to the importance of these
0: places. Well, I for one had never heard of the Roosevelt School or Rosenwood schools, so mm-hmm. um, I gained some insight there.
1: Cool. Yeah, most people have never heard of them. We all know, like the Little House on the Prairie schoolhouse. And that's actually not a far off comparison to what these schools look like and how they operated. Um, most of the people I know uh, went to, who went to them. You know, the boys would get there early and start the wood stove in the winter to have warmth and they had outhouses out back and, um, yeah, I mean a little bit like Laurel Engel school, but poorer the students in these schools almost always got the hand me down books from the white schools They walked great distances to be able to go to school. And there were no buses, even when busing started for the white schools in the thirties and forties that did not exist for African-American schools until the sixties and, So it's just definitely part of the history and the legacy of slavery is that education has not ever been equal in this country.
0: So are you thinking about other stories, writing other stories?
1: Yeah, I definitely have at least one more Steel Secrets book that I'll probably start on in 2017. And then I want to write um, a book. I live on a 200-year-old farm farm. In Madison County, Virginia, which is just north of Charlottesville, it's about six miles from Montpelier, James Madison's house, and I, um, people were enslaved here. Thirteen people, at least, uh, they were on the census in 1850, and so, sorry, on the slave census in 1850. So, I would like to learn more about them, see what I can find about the people who own the house, then um, see if I can track down any descendants and do a little do a little research about them um, so I can honor them here on this place that we live. So those are the next two, I think.
0: So any other thoughts on just how we can bridge both knowledge and relationships with uh, this issue of slavery?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're doing it, Seth. I think, I think calling attention to any group of people who is being silenced is really important um i think owning that what happens to one of us happens to all of us the idea of black history kind of makes me crazy because this is all our history acknowledging that you know owning that you know a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere as dr king said and and really you know paying attention to that and i would also say like in the theme of your podcast Seth, that there is no disconnection between chattel slavery of African-Americans in the U.S. and the situation with human trafficking now. The patterns of those are intersectional. Um, the way it's carried out looks different, but it's, it's still the same practice. And um, it's something we all have to be aware of. It's something we need to be conscientious about about how we spend our money, about where we vacation, about all of these things. And, um, because by doing that, we're honoring the people who live in slavery now and we're working to get them out and we're honoring the memory of the people who lived in slavery 250 years ago. So I really think it's important that we just be honest and open-minded and aware of, about, um, about the history and what's happening now.
0: Some of my own discovery is just realizing how inherently dehumanizing uh, all forms of slavery are, that it's not just Mm -hmm. a matter of getting paid low wages or no wages. It's having other people highly control you and limit your autonomy and inhibit your your will. And Mm -hmm. that is a Really horrible thing that intersects with a lot of other. Um, it intersects with laws, sometimes even well-meaning laws, with prejudice, with uh, the economy, and all of that.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely a. Yeah, it's it's an issue that it's an issue that can be absolutely overwhelming. You know, this, and it's not just an issue. the The situation of slavery now and the historical situation of slavery are just monumental and the impacts of those are, like you said, they reach into all aspects of our lives. so that can be really daunting and it can make people want to sort of turn off and tune out, you know, what can I do about something so bad? But the reality is that you can do a lot of things. If you just take the small actions before you um, make the best decisions you can don't, don't turn away. Don't like, don't pretend like it's not happening. Because it, it it is, and, it, and we can change it.
0: Agreed. I, I'd really like to see lots of these conversations get to be more honest and acknowledging other people's experience, uh, for people to see that there's something different about American chattel slavery, where it ended up being identified with Black people, where Blackness got associated okay. with it, and that that notion made it last as a form of social control and sl- and other forms of slavery after the civil war well while also recognizing yes there's lots of white people and and other you know every race and ethnicity that has had their challenges in our country and abroad and, and those stories matter too but that doesn't make this story any less relevant or important
1: that's exactly right That's exactly right. And I think that that point you make about the link between race and chattel slavery is it's something we don't like to acknowledge. But the reality is we codified racism. We still codify it in some ways. And we taught ourselves as Americans, all Americans, no matter what your ethnicity, to think of black people, of African-American people as lesser And until we're conscientiously fighting that, it's not going to change. Like until we're actually working on that. And yeah, as you said, it doesn't belittle the hardships or the suffering of other people. Absolutely not. But it definitely is something that is unique to America. I think it is our biggest issue as a country, our biggest wound. And I feel like we have to really gaze at it and let the light and the air get to it before it's going to get healed up.
0: Well, I didn't learn in school or otherwise until maybe five years ago about uh, peonage and convict labor and Uh-oh. and similar things that occurred after the Civil War and how most mm-hmm. of them were pretty common until the '40s and how there were things still happening. Uh, in terms of social control until the 60s. And when I realized all that, it made me really, really mad and showed me just how much we don't talk about. And that's I right. Don't, I don't know but, how we're supposed to improve our situation if we don't even recognize what happened in that 100-year span.
1: That's right. Yeah, I mean, the I mean, slavery by another name, if somebody wants to read, like, read a really good book, Douglas Blackman, mm-hmm. Um, uh, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's book about the penal system now. And those are just two great books to sort of educate ourselves about the legacy of chattel slavery, the way it was reinvented, the way it's being reinvented now, um, and what we need to see so that we can really, we can work on it. I mean, I really believe that most people in the world... (laughs) I'm not going to go so far as to say all, but most people in the world genuinely don't want to think less of other people because of their racial identity or their ethnicity. They don't want to be racist. um, Most people, but I do believe that we all have, we're all taught to be racist. And so unless we're going to fight it, it's just going to be part of who we are and, and what, what we believe and, And we're going to keep recreating systems that perpetuate that reality. And, you know, it's hard. It is immensely hard. You know, you watched on Facebook once, Seth, where I got called out on white privilege, and it is painful. It hurts a lot, and it takes a lot of wrestling and struggling. But to get on the other side of that, there's just a freedom that comes, um, and I'm nowhere near done breaking free. There's just no way I'm near done, but I'm freer than I used to be. And it feels really good to be just aware, you know, and, and to deal with the realities of what I believe and what's wrong with what I believe and, and to work to make it right. There's a really a lot of huge amount of grace in that.
0: Yeah. And my more honest moments and looking at myself and how far I've come in my own journey and realizing that It's hard not to make snap judgments about people based on race or even just basic appearance that whether it's just walking down the street in a strange town, I don't really know everyone's stories. And so we we make assumptions. And to think that I've rid my life of any type of racism is hard for me to accept because I don't think I have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I am at least trying to be aware
1: Right, and I feel like that is a I really think it's a journey, and it I think I mean I think that one of the things that we do is we we put ourselves in situations where we're not comfortable, you know, where not everybody looks like us and not everybody thinks like us, and um not everybody has lived the life we have I mean that's part of why I had not ever thought about people that were enslaved on the place I called home, like the place I still think of as home was because I never had encountered or spent time really in conversation with someone for whom their grandparents, that was their reality. And as soon as you start doing that, oh my goodness, the way that you can see how much you don't know, and how much your experience is not normative, is that's the first step. But I mean, it's uncomfortable, like, it's really hard to sort of be out of your comfort zone and engage with people who who are going to disagree with you? But that's—I mean—it's not a hard step in terms of making it happen. It's just a hard step in terms of choosing to do it.
0: Yeah, that's a a good challenge, or at least I'm feeling challenged about it. <laughs> so you uh, have a website?
1: I do. My website is andylit.com dot com, and a n d i l i t dot com, and you can find information about my books there and what I do as a writer. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I try to post there pretty regularly and keep up to date on things. And, um.
0: yeah. And, uh, I, I had taken some online classes from you, uh, several years ago and mm-hmm. those were great. Uh, what, what services are you currently offering?
1: Oh, I do mostly editing right now. Um, so I do content developmental editing for writers and every genre that's out there. Um, I love working with new writers. So that's one thing that I'm especially big on. Um, but I also teach, I'm teaching a class that starts January 1st. It's totally free. It's called discover your writing self. And it helps people explore what they're writing, why they're writing, who they're writing for and the ways that they can write most effectively in their lives as they are now. And people can find that if they go to my website, andylett.com slash D Y W S two zero one seven. Um maybe you can put that in show notes, Seth. But um yeah, so that's there. And then I also do coaching for writers and I work with people that do all kinds of writing. So a couple of my clients are people that are writing about their family histories with slavery. Others are writing theology textbooks. Others are writing fantasy novels and um I just help people kind of meet their goals and think through what they're doing and um I love it. I love everything about my job. But I do that work so that I can do the work where I research slavery and write about it. It fuels my real deep passion.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today. It was good to talk with you again.
1: Thanks for having me, Seth. It's been really nice to be here.
0: And uh, I will definitely be including your information in the show notes. So if anyone would like to... uh, Go to Andy's website or read any of her books. I'll make that easier for you. So, until next time. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.